and welcome to Didian Hawthorne and the In-Between, your place for everything reading and language related. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz. Now bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Hello and herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. Bonjour et bienvenue to podcast. Wow, adding all the languages today, I see. Of course, you all know by way of the title that we are going through our first novel of the year. Yay, fireworks. Technically, we've gone through other novels, but they were presented in the context of book boxes. So this episode does technically work with our first novel of the year. Very exciting. Trust Exercise by Susan Choi. We did review a short story of Choi's from The New Yorker a while back called Flashlight, which will be linked in the show notes for you all at relevanceofliterature.com notes, along with any source material that we mentioned in today's episode. What drew me in initially about Susan Choi was her depiction of the child in Flashlight and how that child conceptualized and progressed through the trauma of losing her father and being there when her father drowned. Not only was Choi sensitive to the event itself by writing it with evasion and opacity, in other words, with details only a child would recognize, but she also took care to write down the line in this child's future to depict the long-term ramifications of the child's situation, which unfortunately started eroding into behavioral problems and suppression. I liked how Choi gave the child's perspective full credit and full authority without being ignorant of the very real and very important societal and familial perspectives around her. The perspectival shifts in the narration itself were also very tasteful and well-mediated, and overall I found Flashlight to be a challenging yet rewarding piece to read in depth and analyze on the show. It wasn't very long afterwards that this novel, Trust Exercise by Susan Choi, became an eyeworm, cousin of the earworm, for me whenever I visited my local bookshop in Chicago. I couldn't leave there without catching a big, bold glimpse at the neon pink cover of Trust Exercise, minimal design, with a single word quote on it from People next to the National Book Award winner sticker right on the front there. The quote was electrifying. In other words, I caved. I bought the book, I read it in a week, and here I am back on the show talking about more of Susan Choi's work. Excerpt from pages 53 to 54 of Trust Exercise. She squeezes her eyes tightly closed, balls the memory up. Sarah, open your eyes, Mr. Kingsley commands. Sarah and David, make eye contact, please. She raises her eyes to his face. The blue agates grudgingly stare. The horizon dividing his lips, the button of his mole, his collarbone partly disclosed by the V of his polo shirt, rising and falling a little too quickly. She seizes on this as a clue, and hope, which she thought she'd forsworn, explodes invisible and noiseless from her chest, but its force must be felt because David recoils, the blue agates receding to points. This is not a staring contest, Mr. Kingsley is saying. I want you to find a soft gaze. I don't mean soft like weepy. 
The first 131 pages of the novel read like a teen romance novel with heightened language, which in a sense, what it is, is what it is. <laughs> the, it chronicles a love story of two individuals, Sarah and David, who are enrolled in a specialized high school for the arts. Both Sarah and David, as well as the majority of the minor characters that ebb in and out of this main narrative's flow, are acting students. Trust Exercise, the name of the book, comes literally in the novel from the trust exercises that their acting curriculum is based off of, which come from their eccentric instructor, Mr. Kingsley. The narrative part of this section comes to a head when exchange students from Britain visit the high school and Sarah, long broken up but still longing for David, gets involved with a much older man named Liam who is traveling with the exchange students. Sarah, heartbroken still, finds herself at a platonic friend Karen's house for the night under the care of Karen's overbearing mother. From there, there is an abrupt break in the narrative. If I can harbor one complaint about the book, it would be that the first section is incredibly hypersexualized. So, this is not a book I would recommend for people who get squeamish when windows start getting foggy or otherwise don't particularly enjoy lots of action in that area. I'm in the latter category, so I definitely understand. One of the themes of this novel is sexual assault and sexual misconduct, especially. Um, sexual assault cases between older men and underage women, so I also advise a word of caution if anyone out there is sensitive to this theme to know that it's there before you proceed with the novel. But, and this next part is why I love the fact that I read this book without knowing anything about it, <laughs> and I'm moving into spoilers, so watch out if you don't want to hear any. The next section changes the narrative entirely and thwarts all expectations that one may have about the novel and this teen romance novel with heightened language, thwarts all expectations about how the novel is going to end. I read from page 132, the first page of the section called Trust Exercise. Karen stood outside the Skylight Bookstore in Los Angeles, waiting for her old friend, the author, her old high school classmate, the author. Was it assuming too much to say friend? Was it accepting too much to say Karen? Karen is not Karen's name, but Karen knew when she read the name Karen that it was she who was meant. Does it matter to anyone apart from Karen what Karen's real name is? Not only does it not matter to anyone else, but the fact that it matters to Karen will probably reflect badly on Karen in the same way that so much about Karen reflects badly on Karen. So Karen won't insist on providing her real name or anyone else's, although she'd like to say for the record that she can see right through the choice of Karen for her designation. Just so you know, the way I was reading Karen is how I would read a name with quotations, heavy quotations around it. So hopefully the amount of Karen was as jarring to you as it was for me. 
I can't emphasize to you enough how abrupt this shift in narrative tone was for me as a reader, and to be completely honest, I sort of loathe the language that Karen uses throughout the second part, which is the largest part of the novel, but I'm here to lay out for you why that language shift was effective in the novel, which is because this novel is actually quite postmodern in the sense that the second part introduces components of metafiction as we realize that pages 1 through 31 are actually an excerpt from a book of fiction written by real-life Sarah, whose name is not Sarah in the real world, just as our new narrator Karen's name is not Karen in the real world, uh, and also unreliable narration as the essence of Sarah's fiction gets torn apart by Karen with her perfect recall of what has actually occurred in their real-life past. Katie Waldman, in her New Yorker article, Who Owns a Story?, discusses trust exercise with regard to her pursuit of defining fiction, saying, quote, Even as she intellectually understands that Sarah writes fiction, Karen approaches the novel uncomprehendingly, with a kind of mental stutter step. She can't help but read the book as history, unquote. And on a broader scale, we as readers of fiction do the same thing as Karen in the second half of the novel. As Waldman eloquently points out, quote, if Troy does at first set us up to process trust exercise as a scrambled autobiography, it's explicitly to draw attention to our tendency as readers to approach characters and books as though they were living people. The act of consuming fiction is itself a trust exercise, and Choi highlights how outrageous the novel is as a proposition, a transient agreement that one enters into with an author to pretend that bald fantasy is reality. Her book underscores our trust by breaking it." Unquote. Overall, I really enjoyed this novel. It was a lot of ups and downs. I really loathed, like I said, this abrupt shift in the novel because I was so invested at that point in the narrative that Sarah, quote unquote Sarah, is writing uh, and narrating for us. And so when that trust was broken, as Waldman again so eloquently points out, I was a little bit heartbroken in the story as itself and the book as itself to communicate something. but. The greatest lesson for me in reading this book was in hindsight, and I really did start to unpack and understand why there were so many ups and downs, which is that there are so many kernels of truth written into not only the prose of the novel, but also the metafictional aspects of the novel as a whole. Um, these are aspects that I recognize from reading Infinite Jest, which again, totally different spheres of literature, seemingly, those two books are, Trust Exercise and Infinite Jest, but at the same time, we get so many similarities between the two, and um, Infinite Jest is more microcosmic <laughs> than Trust Exercise for sure, but Trust Exercise in under 400 pages accomplishes so much with regard to these aspects of postmodernism that I really think are valuable for um, readers who want to get more out of their reading. 
from a more fictional perspective, I honestly was a little bit um, disappointed by the hard facts of the truth. And I think um, in the narrative, that's another way that Susan Choi breaks our trust, so to speak. Um, so in the actual real life section of the novel, David, for example, is this overweight, balding drunk, uh, and he has sort of singular purposes in mind to direct theater, to promote Sarah's book, even though he's never read the book. So it seems like David becomes uh, just a disappointing version of himself as an adult. And we do see that somewhat at the end of the fictional narrative before page 131, where Sarah sneaks into David's car and she realizes that he's not no longer really the boy that she knew. He's sort of this uh, play acting figure of a very uh, dysfunctional man, which is indeed what he is in the in real life and in the rest of the novel. So I was honestly um, taken aback by that breach of trust as well of not only this incongruence between David as a teenager in the fiction novel versus David in real life as an adult, um, but also this uh, astoundingly unreliable narration that we get. And the farther we read into the book, the farther uh, we start to realize uh, how unreliable it is. I would say the way that Choi builds characters similarly is pretty mesmerizing to me. The characters evolve not only throughout space and time in the novel, um, both in the fictional narrative, which is for the most part a lot of what we have to rely on for the rest of the novel, um, but also in um, the place of individual instances of characters appearing. So when a minor character appears on scene, we get a pretty good idea of a description. And what's interesting is I know that Karen probably, especially <laughs> as a character in this first section of the novel, the fictional section, is mired by Sarah's perspective, as everything would be, right? Um, we've got Sarah's perspective in the fictional section and Karen's perspective in the narrative section. Um, but what I liked is that even despite this overwhelming presence of the narrator and this shadow um, of, that the narrator is placing on all the characters and events because they're funneling them through their own experience and thoughts, um, despite all that, we still get kernels of truth in all these characters and there's something so distilled about the way that characters are introduced and the way that they interact. It almost reminds me of this everyman idea, how the characters, they have quirks about them, they have things about them that uh, would easily identify them as they come on scene, but there's also uh, these particular, like I said, kernels of truth that uh, allow the characters to seem real and seem like they're walking and breathing um, and that's not always the case. I'm reading a book right now, it's called Miss Benson's Beetle uh, by Rachel Joyce and the characters to me are not as real. They're not, they don't have that everyman quality of 
living, breathing beings as much as trust exercise. And it may be the premise of the book or something along those lines, um, for sure. But I would just say that there's something in the description that Choi uh, so expertly employs that really does lend itself to excellent uh, depictions of character. I also want to touch briefly on the third part of the book. This book actually has three parts. <laughs> and yes, I was surprised too as a reader <laughs> reading through. The third part of the book is about Karen's daughter. So we learn a lot more um, about the backstory between Sarah and Karen as Karen narrates, uh, like I said earlier, like uh, Waldman so uh, amazingly points out. There's a lot that Karen endeavors herself to fill in for us as readers. Uh, Karen is very aware of her role as the narrator and she does dive really deeply into things like etymology and things like um, mental terms for mental illness, which she's very well versed in. And so Karen, as we learn, has a daughter. Um, and the daughter is actually Martin's daughter, who is Liam's colleague. Uh, they're both British exchange uh, individuals. Martin is the instructor, 40s, 50s maybe. Um, Liam is about 24 at the time that they first visit. So yeah, Karen ends up uh, having a daughter. She ends up taking a leave from school to go to um, a sort of rectory where she has the daughter, gives it up for adoption, and then goes back to the Arts Academy. And the third part of the book, uh, what's devastating, and I think it really leaves us as readers as a, at a harsh ending point, at least in my opinion, is the lack of information that this daughter has about her past and her mother, her real mother. So she has a beautiful adoptive family, she's felt comfortable in it, all of this. But at the same time, she's seeking information about her mother and what's there is so bare and so minimal. Uh, and we assume that, or at least I assumed when I was reading, that she had access or knew that her mother was um, perhaps related to the narrative in the beginning. The more that I think about it, the more that I realize actually probably not, because if she really did know, then it would be different. She would know more. But in any case, I do think that um, the information that she had was so minimal that it was almost destructive to her because she goes on this journey, a very important journey to her um, of seeking her past and some answers and some explanations and some more information. And she ends up getting portrayed, betrayed by the person, the only person that she thinks can help her, the school's acting teacher. And we're not going to get into the exact nature of the betrayal just because that's uh, adult content. And this podcast does not deal with adult content. But uh, suffice to say that it has to do with some serious themes from earlier that I talked about. And when she goes to seek this acting instructor, um, she doesn't find any more information than she comes out with. Um, and she realizes that the 
and one of the administrators at the school, at this high school where Karen attended, um, recognized Karen in her. But she didn't know at the time that this administrator would have known Karen and would have known her mother's story. Instead, she says, or thinks, you know, too low bar for me. I really need to go to the acting instructor who I knew taught her. Um, and she misses the opportunity to get the information she's seeking and ends up essentially scarred out of this whole situation. So again, this, this third part, which is very short in comparison to the other two, uh, has to do with trust. And it's this uh, young woman's trust in the acting instructor, in this person who taught her mother uh, to help her out with some information. And that trust ultimately is betrayed in a very serious and a very uh, heartbreaking, devastating way. Um, and you leave the novel, at least I did, with a sense of this devastation. And you ask yourself, after this kind of trust is broken, over and over again and somewhat irrevocably, what's left? If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.